Hello, everyone, and welcome to the May 23rd edition of the WorkCop Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with the Floyd Skarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. California is losing the legal battles over its new corporate director diversity laws. Beginning this year, SB 826 required that publicly held corporations in California have at least one to as many as three female directors on their board of directors, depending upon the total number of directors for the company. The Assembly Judiciary Committee analysis of the new law said clearly that it would be difficult to support the law against legal constitutional challenges. And the committee expectation of having difficult challenges seems now in hindsight to be the case. In the most recent court ruling, the plaintiffs alleged that SB 826 violates the equal protection provisions under the California Constitution. And last week, a Los Angeles County-based Superior Court judge agreed that SB 826 was indeed unconstitutional in the case of Crest v. Padilla. The first prerequisite to a meritorious claim under the Equal Protection Clause is a showing that the state has adopted a classification that affects two or more similarly situated groups in an unequal manner. A plaintiff challenging the statute meets their initial burden simply by pointing out the classification which makes the statute presumptively unconstitutional and then shifting the burden of proof to the government. And then the government must meet that what is known as the strict scrutiny test and thus the government must show one, a compelling state interest Secondly, that the law is necessary, and finally, that the law is narrowly tailored to accomplish the purpose. The strict scrutiny standard applies even if a law is claimed to be remedial. So the Superior Court considered all evidence, but concluded the compelling state interest requirement was lacking and held the law to be unconstitutional. And this was the second recent California court decision finding that quotas for corporate boards are unconstitutional. Another new law, AB 979, was passed into law on the heels of SB 826. It had similar provisions for the protection of members of underrepresented communities rather than women. In that case, also cited as Crest versus Padilla, another Los Angeles County-based Superior Court judge ruled last April that the law violates the Equal Protection Clause of the California Constitution on its face. And Sacramento-based Pacific Legal Foundation, a public interest law firm, is also pursuing similar litigation in federal court in California. That case was dismissed by the trial judge who found that a shareholder has no standing to challenge the law. But, in a unanimous published opinion, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed, sending that case back to the trial court. And now our crime report. A convicted murderer 
who is currently serving a life sentence in a California prison, is the lead defendant in a $2 million EDD fraud prosecution. The arrests of five suspects were made following a 39-count indictment that charges 13 defendants in a scheme to use misappropriated personal identifying information to fraudulently apply for and receive unemployment benefits. The lead defendant in the case is 37-year-old Natalie Lee DiMola, who has been serving a life sentence at the California Institution for Women since 2005, when she and her then-boyfriend Terry Bell were convicted of first-degree manslaughter for beating her mother to death. DiMola, who was 16 at the time, and Bell, who was 17, had plotted to kill her mother because she objected to them dating. The EDD fraud indictment also charges 32-year-old Carlicia Neosha Plummer of Los Angeles, who was Demola's close associate in prison until she was paroled in July of 2020. The convicted murderer, Demola, allegedly procured the personal details, including dates of birth and social security numbers of other inmates and their visitors, from a prison associate who is unnamed and who has access to that information. She would then send the details onto her accomplices outside prison who would file for fraudulent unemployment benefits, which they would have sent to their mailboxes. Prison inmates are not eligible for unemployment benefits, but the gang would check boxes on the application stating they were not incarcerated. The conspiracy and bank fraud charges each carry a statutory maximum sentence of 30 years in federal prison, and aggravated identity theft carries a mandatory two-year consecutive sentence. A former physician assistant at a Fountain Valley medical clinic, Rafe Wadey Iskander, formerly of Ladera Ranch, but who now resides in Ennis, Montana, was sentenced to 46 months in federal prison for conspiring to issue and sell illegal prescriptions for oxycodone to drug dealers known to the knowing that the drugs would be sold on the street. He was a graduate of the Stanford University and became a licensed physician's assistant back in 2011. Iskander pleaded guilty in 2020 to one count of conspiracy to distribute oxycodone. Iskander wrote prescriptions for purported patients he had never met or examined and provided multiple paper prescriptions that he had signed to drug dealers, but with the patient names left blank so the names could be filled in later by the drug dealers. He wrote prescriptions for two co-defendants, 36-year-old Adam Antoine Rogero of Costa Mesa, and 42-year-old Johnny Gilbert Alvarez of Santa Ana, who sold the prescribed drugs on the street as well to an undercover agent. The Drug Enforcement Administration, the Costa Mesa Police Department, and the California Department of Health Care Services investigated this case. Three Sacramento-area residents, Troy Williams of Angels Camp, Nancy Mormon of Somerset, 
and John Allison of Rockland, California, faced charges of workers' compensation premium fraud for allegedly manipulating their company's payroll, resulting in a loss of nearly $128,000 by the state compensation insurance fund. Troy Williams, one of the defendants, has owned and operated the framing business called Archer Building Company since 2001. And his co-defendant, John Allison, who was also an Archer Building Company employee, created another company known as Allison Development. Archer Building Company diverted its carpentry payroll to Allison Development in order to avoid paying accurate workers' compensation insurance premiums. And after Allison Development's workers' compensation policy was canceled, the employees transferred back to Archer Building Company. And the third defendant, Nancy Mormon, was the bookkeeper and point of contact for insurance audits for both companies. The El Dorado County District Attorney's Office is prosecuting this case. Amaranti Perez of Highland, the proprietor of a San Bernardino area janitorial business found guilty of fraud last year, was ordered to pay over $2.4 million in restitution while serving two years of felony probation for committing workers' compensation and tax fraud. Perez was the owner of four companies, Capital Janitorial Services, Cal Best Service Group Incorporated, Southern Pacific Janitorial Group, and United Pacific Contractors Incorporated. He committed workers' compensation and tax fraud by failing to fully insure his employees for workers' compensation and underreporting his employee payroll. The nearly $2.5 million in restitution will be paid to multiple victims, including the EDD, Republic Underwriters, Berkshire Hathaway, and Liberty Mutual. And in regulatory news, federal law currently sets the minimum wage at $7.25 an hour. However, federal law allows states and cities to set a minimum wage that is higher than the federal standard. So the California minimum wage is currently $15 an hour for employers of 25 or more employees and $14 an hour for all employers of less than 25 employees. There are some employees who are exempt from the California minimum wage law, such as outside salespersons, individuals who are the parent, spouse, or child of the employer, and apprentices regularly indentured under the State Division of Apprenticeship Standards. Several local California jurisdictions have also passed minimum wage laws, such as San Francisco, San Jose, Los Angeles, San Diego, Oakland, and Berkeley. The University of California at Berkeley has compiled and maintains local, city, and county level minimum wage rates on their website. A 2016 statute signed into law by former Governor Jerry Brown, Senate Bill 3, included a provision requiring an automatic increase in the minimum wage as determined by the Consumer Price Index. The California Department of Finance said it protects, projects inflation this year 
that has triggered the minimum wage increase. So this week, Governor Newsom announced that all California employers will be required, regardless of their size, to pay a new minimum wage of $15.50 per hour, effective January 1, 2023. This also increases the minimum salary for most exempt employees in California. And in other minimum wage developments, earlier last week, supporters of California's ballot initiative to raise California's minimum wage to $18 per hour announced having submitted more than 1 million signatures, which is way beyond the 623,000 required to land it on the November California ballot. If this ballot measure passes, the minimum wage would move up annually until reaching $18 an hour on January 1, 2028. Ironically, Governor Newsom proclaimed this month, May, as the Small Business Month in California. Kalosha fined a San Francisco Bay Area refinery and three contractor companies more than $1.75 million for safety violations after the death of a 35-year-old worker, Luis Gutierrez, who suffocated while trying to clean a well. Three of the four employers were cited with willful and serious violations after determining determining that they failed to follow confined space guidelines, which resulted in exposure to an oxygen-deficient atmosphere. A willful violation is cited when evidence shows the employer either knowingly violated the law or took no reasonable steps to address a known hazard. A serious violation, however, is cited where there is a realistic possibility that death or serious physical harm could result from the actual hazard created by the violation. San Antonio-based Valerio bought this refinery back in 2000, and the refinery processes crude oil into gasoline, diesel fuel, jet fuel, and asphalt. On November 12, 2021, the worker lost consciousness after descending into a regenerator overflow well at the Valero Benicia refinery to elevate the condition of well interior and to perform cleaning operations in advance of a welding crew. He was then found inside the regenerator suspended by fall protection equipment. The victim was a worker for a contractor on the site, J.T. Thorpe, a Richmond-based company. Inspectors determined that a welding torch was left in the well that was leaking argon, an odorless gas that displaced oxygen inside the confined space. Kalosha said that working in confined spaces is extremely dangerous, as is working with argon. The first step to preventing a completely avoidable fatality is to identify hazards before a worker enters a confined space. Employers must identify and label confined spaces, establish and maintain on-site emergency response plans, and provide training for workers and supervisors. Common types of confined spaces include tanks, silos, pipelines, 
sewers, storage bins, drain tunnels, and vaults. Kalosha has extensive information, informational materials on its website, including a confined space guide to help employers provide safe workplaces and ensure workers know these hazards. And in medical news, the Workers' Compensation Research Institute announced the release of a new study on chiropractic care for low back pain. The study reports substantial variation in the use of chiropractic care across 28 different states and offers insights into the patterns and outcomes of chiropractic care. Chiropractors often participate in the delivery of physical medicine services for low back pain, but few workers receive chiropractic care in states where employers or insurers control the selection of providers. So, the WCIRA says that this study will be helpful for policymakers and stakeholders who are interested in reevaluating the role of chiropractors. It says that when chiropractors are involved in care, they alone may provide physical medicine care or deliver physical medicine care in conjunction with other non-chiropractic physical medicine providers. Based on the experience of 16 states with prevalent chiropractic care, 12% of workers with low back pain receive physical medicine care exclusively from chiropractors, and 17% receive physical medicine treatment from chiropractors and other non-chiropractic providers concurrently or sequentially. It found that claims with care provided exclusively by chiropractors were associated with lower costs and shorter duration of temporary disability than a set of claims with similar characteristics where care was exclusively provided by non-chiropractic providers. The data used for this study are from more than 2 million open and closed claims from 28 states, including California. To learn more about this study or to download a copy, please visit WCRI's website. After a three-day trial in Tennessee that gripped nurses across the country, former nurse Radana Vaught was convicted of two felonies, gross neglect of an impaired adult and negligent homicide, and was facing eight years in prison for the fatal medication mistake. She was arrested back in 2019 in connection with the killing of Charlene Murphy, who died at Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt University Medical Center in late December 2017. The patient was prescribed a sedative to calm her before being scanned in a large MRI-like machine. Nurse Vaught was tasked to retrieve the drug from a computerized medication cabinet, but instead grabbed a powerful paralyzer by mistake. By the time the error was discovered, her patient was brain dead. So, the nurse was sentenced to three years of probation this week as hundreds of healthcare workers rallied outside the courthouse, warning that criminalizing such mistakes will lead to more deaths in hospitals. The state judge imposed the sentence after the nurse apologized to relatives of the victim and said she'll be forever haunted by her mistake. 
The Nashville criminal court judge said that Nurse Vaught would receive judicial diversion, a way for first-time offenders to have their charges dropped and their records expunged after successfully completing probation. In weighing whether to grant Vaught judicial diversion, the judge cited her remorse as well as her honesty about the medication error. Prosecutors had argued against diversion, although they were not opposed to probation. Healthcare workers cheered at the sentence after they spent hours waiting outside the courtroom in the sun and clung to every word of the judge's lengthy sentencing explanation, some linked in a chain with hands locked. The fact that Nurse Vought faced any criminal penalties at all has become a rallying point for many nurses who were already fed up with poor working conditions exacerbated by the pandemic. After Nurse Vought was found guilty last March, healthcare workers began posting to social media that they were leaving bedside nursing for administrative positions or even quitting the profession altogether. They said the risk of going to prison for a mistake has made nursing intolerable. Nurse Vought admitted making several errors that led to the fatal injection, but her defense attorney argued that systematic problems at Vanderbilt University Medical Center were at least partly to blame. And in other industry news, Sedgwick announced it has acquired Orchid Medical, a nationwide provider of ancillary medical management solutions for the workers' compensation industry. Orchid Medical was established back in 2002 as a durable medical equipment and medical supplies provider. It subsequently evolved into a national provider of integrated ancillary and surgical cost containment solutions specifically for the workers' compensation industry. Now, Orchard Medical offers a broad range of services including surgical cost containment programs, DME supplies, prosthetics and orthotics, home health and complex care, modifications, diagnostic imaging, physical medicine, transportation and language, retrospective DME, long-term care, and urine drug testing. The company is headquartered and fully operated in Orlando, Florida. Cedric says that this acquisition represents an investment in the continued growth of Cedric's ancillary care network. Cedric's president of managed care said that together with Orchid, the company will strengthen its holistic approach to caring for clients injured and ill colleagues, helping them to return to maximum health and productivity. They say this acquisition provides employers a single point of service for a broad range of ancillary care needs, while strengthening Sedgwick's workers' compensation and managed care capabilities and commitment to taking care of people when they need it the most. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And remember, we also publish our daily news podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. 
Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.